This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 354. And the quote of the day is from Maya Angelou, who said, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, and this is session 354 of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I hope you're well. And it is NAM time. And for those of you who are going to NAM, uh, I'm doing a little meetup, like just a super informal meetup at the Dream Symbols booth, which is booth 7239, 7239. And I'm doing that on Saturday at 1230 p.m. at the Dream Symbols booth at NAM booth 7239 and you can come up hang out it's just super informal just something to get some FaceTime with you guys talk to you get to know you a little bit better rather than just this one-way conversation on the podcast so again that'll be at NAM on Saturday at 12 30 p.m at the Dream Symbols booth 7239 I hope to see you there I'll also post about it on social media so you can you know you can screen screen grab it or whatever so you remember the booth number All right, now let's get into this conversation. And this is with Ulysses Owens Jr. And for those of you who don't know who Ulysses is, I'm sure that most of you do. But if you don't, let me give you a little background on my man. He's been named Rising Star by Downbeat Critics Poll for five years straight. He's the recipient of the 2013 ASCAP Plus Awards, a gold member winner of the 2014 Global Music Awards, and a 2015 Jazz at Lincoln Center Swing Awards honoree. As if that wasn't enough, He's also played on the 2010 Grammy Award winning record with Kirk Elling. He also played on the 2012 Grammy Award winning record with Christian McBride, as well as other Grammy nominations for other records that he's played on with Christian McBride. Not only that, the dude is wise. We get in deep into this conversation about about life, about mantras, about being multifaceted, about running your business as a drummer, about honoring the tradition of the music. I mean, we get... We get really deep, and he definitely drops some knowledge. So, without further ado, let's get into it with the one and only Ulysses Owens Jr. All right. Ulysses, how are you, my man? I'm great, man. Honored to be a part of this. I'm so honored to have you as well. I've been, you know, I've been following what you do. I've been a, a fan of yours for a while, so it's great to to have you on the podcast. Um, I wanna, I wanna go back. I always like to build some backstory. I know that you got started playing at a, at a really young age, right? So you started, you started playing when you were two. Um, what I, I've had this conversation with many people that I've realized that if you grow up in church, you start playing at a very young age, you start playing at two, three, four, because you're in that, you're in that environment. So, but, but talk to me, talk to me about your childhood. What was your childhood like? And what was it, what was it like growing up, uh, growing up in church and, and playing drums at such an early age cool man um i I feel really blessed with my childhood for a couple reasons one because i came from a really musical family and so my family is full of uh men and women who mostly are ministers uh as it pertains to church um and they are a lot of great singers and so i really felt kind of like the black sheep because i could not sing but ironically my mother who's the choir director would bring me to church choir rehearsals and would sit me next to the drummer and as i'm told one day the drummer got up for a break 
And I sat down and I started keeping time. And that was kind of like everybody's first acknowledgement of, wow, okay, he has something. Um, But to your point, you know, especially in growing up in the African-American Pentecostal church, everybody played. It it, it wasn't, it was like a sport, right? It was like being Mm -hmm. out, you know, uh, you know, in one of the, uh, you know, apartment complexes in New York City and just everybody played basketball. And so I wasn't necessarily acknowledged as a prodigy until much later, um, until we had a competition called like teen talent. And it was basically where all of these kids within our denomination in church from all over the state and then nationally would get together and we would compete in different categories. And that was right around the time I had a cousin who actually lives in New York and he was sort of training me. And that's when he said to my mom, he was like, Hey, Ulysses has something, you know, like he can play time, you know, he plays well in church, but then he has this vocabulary of soloing. And I remember hearing him say that term. He was like, he has like vocabulary that's beyond his age. Um, so yeah, I would say, you know, started playing around two and then, um, probably around age seven or eight, I actually just wrote a blog about this. That was when I understood that not only was I a good player, but that I had a responsibility with my playing. And so that was when that same drummer who got up and I sat down in his place, he got tired of dealing with the church and financial issues and he just left. So the church was literally without a drummer. And my uncle, who was the pastor, you know, he said, hey, instead of us going out here and trying to find some adult who we don't even know is going to be committed, let's hire Ulysses. He's been committed. He comes every Sunday. He sits next to the drummer. You know, he does what he's supposed to do. My dad had even built this little set of cowbells that I could play and sort of be a little auxiliary percussionist with the drummer. (laughs) So my uncle was like, hey, use him. So literally at eight years old, man, I went from just being a little cowbell player to playing for the youth choir uh, two other choirs, you know, having rehearsals several times a week. And it was a gig, man. I had a job. <laughs> so so when you say that you've, you've had responsibility, uh, you're, you're playing had responsibility now, you were saying because you had this gig now? Yeah, because I had the gig. Because before it was just fun. It was just like, all right, I'm discovering something. Versus now it was like, okay, we're depending on you. And I remember my mother having these conversations like, okay, you can't, you know, not that I'd be hanging out late at eight years old anyway, but (laughs) she'd be saying things like, you know, you can't can't be coming in at one, two o'clock in the morning, hanging out with the women. Party, man. (laughs) (laughs) But she would say things like, you know, you can't stay up too late because you've got to get up. You got to have breakfast. You know, we got to pray and we got to get you ready for church, you know, and I still had to do all the stuff that my my cousins had to do, which was I still had to go to Sunday school, you know, so I still had to do the kids stuff. But then when they were sitting in the audience playing with mom and taking a nap during church, I was up there, you know, performing and I was up there like being attuned and listening to the sermon and having to understand um, what how my music had responsibility and tied to sort of this larger uh, big picture. And man, for me, it was definitely amazing because now here I am, you know, years later as almost 35 years old. And I've never separated music from responsibility and the purpose of music versus other people who have always looked at it as this is just my thing or this is what I'm gifted to do. For me, it was like, yes, I'm gifted, but my gift comes with an accountability and an assignment. And and with that assignment, there's a purpose. So I've always seen it that way. Is there, and I owe that to my childhood. D- does any does any joy get taken out of it if it's always looked at? as a job or as a responsibility? No, actually for me, the joy was, was, was more directional, you know? So like, like my joy would first be, oh my God, like I got, you know, my cousin would say, you got to have the pocket, man. You got to play in the pocket. So when I could actually get through a song playing in the pocket, I was proud of that. Or if he say, Hey, you know, this feel and this place in the song works here and I did it right. That was where the joy came. So for me, my joy was very much relegated around again, my accountability to the musical moment. So it was never like some of my other friends 
who, you know, they, their mother and father would have them come down at Christmas and play an etude for family. Like, it was never just that. My mom wasn't saying, come and set up the drums and play for granny. It was more of, you got to play in front of church for this purpose. So, right. yeah, I mean, for, for me, I started understanding joy was people and, and obviously God being pleased with what I was doing. Hmm. So it's just a different aspect of joy for me. Sure. And, and it still plays into how I am even now. Right. Well, and I ask because there's a lot of people who, you know, they're maybe in their 20s or 30s and they switch mm -hmm. and they start playing full time as a career. And it, mm -hmm. it literally sucks some of the joy out of it where they're like, oh, yeah, man, I used to do this because I it was it was my you know, it was my way of getting out of the, the real world and escaping my job or my problems or this. And I could just go play yeah. drums for a couple hours. And now, yeah, now it's a job. And now well, it, it's sucking the joy out of it. And that's why well, I was asking you about that. Well, that definitely happened to me, but not when I was in church, that actually happened to me when I was in college, when I went to Juilliard and I studied there as I was a part of the jazz program. And, you know, up to that moment, even though I was working my butt off being in church and all that. And even once I was 16, I started playing around town in Jacksonville, doing, you know, everything from weddings to corporate gigs to all that. I was working a lot. When I got to college, I had to start understanding the work behind playing because the work that I had understood before was, you know, choir rehearsal, even, you know, I had private teachers, but it was still fun. When I got to New York, it was not fun anymore because it became, all right, you got to analyze, transcribe, you know, then you got to go to these gigs. Then you're competing against some of the best drummers in the world like it. And, and the other thing, which is what I think you were speaking to, is I started to feel the pressure. And that was what I had never felt when I was in Jacksonville. I, it was still like work, but work on your own terms. In New York, it was like work or die, <laughs> work or get forgotten, work or you won't get a chance. So it was never... It was never that the work was overpowering to where you're like, man, I hate drums. I don't want to, I don't want, no. I don't want to like, I don't want to, cause I, you know, some people get like that. They're like, I don't want to, I don't want anything to do with the drum. Like I hate everything about it, you know, cause they get so, they get so, you know, frustrated or they get so overcome with pressure or whatever the case may be. Well, you got to also understand for me, the drums were my own, was like the only thing I was good at. You know, I mean, when I was young, I had some learning disabilities. My sister was a beauty queen and and an academic, you know, so I didn't do that well at school. I had some of these learning disabilities, but I was the music guy. I was, I could play. My boys were great at, at basketball and football. I loved it, but I wasn't good at it. That's so how, did me, you play, did you play sports when you were younger? Of course, of course. Yeah. I just wasn't, I wasn't great at it. Like you know, organized so, sports or did you just play in the neighborhood? Absolutely. Yeah. I played in the neighborhood and then I tried to do organized sports. Um, I, the one that I probably could have done well was basketball, but then it competed with my band. Um, and my band teacher was like, you are so necessary, necessary, excuse me, to what we do that I can't let you do this. So so for me, music kind of became that thing of like, yo, there's, there's I mean, there's work, but it's like the one thing that I'm good at. I'm the drummer around campus. Like I had popularity because it was like, yo, you know, hit up Ulysses. He can play a beat for you. You know, so it was it was kind of my claim to fame. So so for me, it was it, it gave me placement. You know, mm -hmm. so, yeah, that's why I never lamented any of the work or any of the stuff. Like I said, until I got to New York, where no matter how much I worked, I was still invincible or at mm -hmm. least I felt that way, right. <laughs> you know. Right. So well, changed. could you you hear stories about professional athletes that, you know, yeah. they, they start playing when they're four. And by the time they get to the NBA or the NFL, or, mm -hmm. you know, like, man, I've been doing this for so long. I just I'm tired of it. I'm, I want to do nah. something else. And and, you know, not that not that I, uh, you know, suggest that anyone does that but i you know i know that people some people do suffer with it at that at that level you know what i mean if you're if you're performing at that high of a level like you were juilliard well i had i'll tell you i had one moment um actually when i was a kid so so i told you i'd start playing when i was two then around eight or nine um you know was playing for church so by the time i was 12 years old 
I went to the summer band camp before my sixth grade year. And I remember saying to my mother and father, I said, you know, I've been playing the drums, you know, for a really long time. Right. <laughs> you know, at this point I've been playing, you know, for seven years or whatever. Uh-huh. I said, I, I think I'm ready to move on to something else, you know. And they said, well, why? I mean, you're going to go to a summer band camp. It's the first time you can be a part of a like a legit high school band or excuse me, you know, middle school band. Why would you give up drums? I said, oh, I just I'm tired of it. I want to play saxophone. So I go I audition. My teacher says, OK, um, do you play anything else? And I said, yeah, I play the drums. So I go and I play on the drum set for her. And she says to me, she says, look, take that saxophone home. Please never show it to me again. You're going to be my drummer. She said, I didn't know you played drums like that. <laughs> and so that was sort of one time I did like have like a sort of an exodus, you know, from from not music, but drums. You know, people knew what I really could do on the drum. And they're like, man, get with it. <laughs> this is where your gift is. It's, you know? it's a funny story. I was uh, years ago, I was auditioning a guitar player for my mm-hmm. band and he comes in and he was okay, you know, and he's like, oh yeah, I also play keys. And I said, oh, well, come next time and bring your keys. And I was like, he brought his keyboards. I was like, don't ever bring that guitar again. Yeah, right. I mean, the guy was like amazing. I was like, why are you even coming up in here t- saying you play guitar? I was like, just keep, I was like, and we played in the band for 15 years after that. And now all he does is play organ. Right. You know? And I'm like, why? You know, what? you want to try something different. <laughs> I'm like, what were you thinking? <laughs> so I saw, I was, I read that, you know, at, at one point you just, you realized that you really wanted to be a jazz musician and I'm I'm guessing did you so let me ask you this first were you did you grow up listening to jazz or was it no. only gospel or was it in, in in your house so it was two two I always say two ears right so in one ear I had my mother playing all the gospel stuff you know of the time which in the 80s growing up was commission and you know groups were emerging like uh John P Key and 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 like you know and sort of later to come like was that whole sort of Fred Hammond and all that more progressive gospel but I was listening to like more a lot of choir music because in the 80s, it was a big choir era. So that was really important for me. So that's what I was hearing in one ear. Um, and then in the other ear, my father was a huge or is a huge R&B and oldies guy. So mm. I was hearing Otis Redding and Marvin Gaye. And, and then my dad also, he wasn't a jazz guy, but he kind of liked what was jazz fusion, which would be groups like Crusaders and like Ramsey Lewis. Like they were kind of like R&B jazz, you know, mm-hmm. and um, Norman Connors. Like he was into that plus, you know, Earth, Wind and Fire and all that. So that's really what I grew up with um, until probably about 13 years old, where that same cousin that taught me that I mentioned earlier, he started he was in college and he started bringing, excuse me, bringing home these records of like Oscar Peterson and I, I'll never forget he played Oscar Peterson, uh, Honeysuckle Rose, the, the jazz standard. And I, I remember hearing Oscar's technique and the way he was playing through the music and on the piano. I was like, wow, I've never heard anything like that. And then my parents, um, ironically, that same Christmas bought a Buddy Rich videotape for me. It was like celebrating the life of Buddy Rich and sort of his journey. And so that was the first time like the sound of jazz kind of started seeping its way into my ear. And then by the time I started high school, I actually got selected for the jazz big band the first year. And I didn't even know what big band music was. And that's when I got bit by the bug and I started listening really first to big band music, which was again, Buddy mm-hmm. Rich. Then I started listening to like Sinatra at the Sands. So yeah, so I think my interest in jazz kind of started like 13, 14, 15. But then um, where I really made a decision was when I was 16 and I came to New York to visit a cousin and I knew I wanted to go to college here. So he set up for me to go to Manhattan School of Music and meet John Riley, a great jazz drummer oh, yeah, educator. Yeah. yeah. And so I've John, had John on the show. Yeah, John is great. So John heard me play 
And so he was so gracious. He was like, you know, man, you really can play. He said, but I have to be honest and say that you're really talented, but you don't have a, a, t- a jazz touch. He said, and if you want to come to this school, you got to really use these next couple of years and get your jazz touch together. And I was like, OK, well, what does that mean? Because in Jacksonville, you know, got drummers played everything. So like if you, you play at church on Sunday, Sunday night at the jazz club, you know, whatever. But we didn't alter our touch. And so he said, hey, go check out this record by Miles Davis called Milestones. So I called my mother. She checked it out. I listened to Milestones. And I always say to people, I, I was so dramatic. I like emptied out my car CD players, like all my Tupac, all my Boys to Men, all that. Like I emptied it out, put it in the box. And I literally listened to jazz only for like the next seven, eight years. Really? And I was like, I'm going to be a jazz musician. Yeah, because I just I knew like when I listened to Philly, Joe, there was something in his touch that I was like, I'm not going to be able to get to that and keep listening to this. Even though I love this, if I want to get to that, I got to make some decisions. So I literally made a decision, man. And that, that was where it started. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Like, what were you just listening to jazz, but you you sort of filled that filled in those those uh, those holes. You're like, oh, I was listening to Tupac. I was listening to, you know, I was oh, listening everything. to Boys to Men. I was listening to, yeah. you know. Uh, so what, all right, bigger Tupac. Oh, well, you know, it's interesting because I love them both. Like, I would say I love Biggie's flow, but I love Tupac's ability, like his content. You know, I mean, not not like all the California and like all that stuff, but when his stuff was more conscious, like his ability to weave in sort of his being a revolutionary into his content, that was just brilliant to me versus Biggie. The flow was heavy and the rhythm and the way he sat in the beat was was epic. But I didn't really feel the subject matter was weighted, you know. Right, right, right. Yeah, I had to ask. That's just me. <laughs> no, I had. I mean, that's uh, you of know, course. It's funny. Like I grew up like this white kid in the burbs, and all I listened to was like you know I listened to. to and you and I are about the same age. I'll be. I'm. I'm 36. Uh, oh, cool. And but I, you know, listening to like all old school hip hop, like everything from like Eric B and Rakim to like yeah. DOC and all that stuff. And yeah. and. uh but it's amazing that that even like that old school hip hop just had there there was something there you know what i mean Absolutely. that had like this there was there was musicality to it there was there was you know the, whether you're looking at jazz or you're looking at hip hop like they were obviously polar opposites of each other but to me there was like an element that was the same like there was something that was the same to me like listening to miles davis and listening to biggie well to well so to me weird, I mean, first but, of all no, no, no. First of all, you're absolutely correct. But you got to see, you got to look at, to me, not that I'm a historian, but generationally, the first, you know, first of all, the hip hop you and I listened to, those guys were really influenced by the creators of hip hop, right? Because that was, uh, so the whole Grandmaster Flash, whatever, Biggie and them were like babies watching that come to life. And then, you know, Grandmaster Flash and Ice-T and all those guys, they were babies while Miles Davis was still walking on the earth and John Coltrane was still around. So, to me, they were still connected versus I feel like this new generation of hip hop. Not only are they disconnected from the Grandmaster Flash, they're also connect disconnected from Snoop and Dr. Dre. Yeah. You know, then then they're disconnected from live music. And you sort of hit the I think nail on the head, which is that most of the early hip hop guys were ref, were influenced by live music. You got to think mm-hmm. that or sampling early hip, it, you know. You're at least sampling it, right? Like they were close to it versus this new generation. They're not even close to like the samples of, or I should say they're close to the samples of the samples. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. so they're just, it's just further, it's, it's more generational. I don't even think it's intentional. It's just generational. They just keep getting further away from it. 
Yeah, I guess that's just the natural, you know, the natural, uh, the natural progression of things, you know, that new, new things are coming out. And like, you know, I remember when, you know, not, I don't remember when hip hop came out, but I know that a lot of people were listening to hip hop and they're like, what is this? This isn't music, you know? And now people mm-hmm. are listening to new hip hop and they're like, oh man, this isn't old school hip hop. Hip hop was music, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think, Absolutely. It, you know, your, your view on things change. So what, what was the, what was the vibe with, with your friends? Like you grow up, your friends are listening to like Pac and Biggie and you're like, no nah, man, I'm listening to this Miles Davis record. Like for people because I went through that and I know what my friends used to say to me. So I wonder what yeah. it was like for you. Well, it was interesting. The girls liked it because, you know, they're like, you know, they, they, right. You know, they got in my car, you know, I had on the John Coltrane ballot album, you know, um, <laughs> you know, they were like, Ooh, this is they're like, nice. Ooh, he's, he's not one of these thugs. He's, he's sweet. He's listening to this good music. Um, but then, but then there were other friends of mine. And even to this day, even now that I've kind of like gone back and now I'm listening I'm trying to listen to like everything. Um, but, you know, it's funny because like my, a lot of my boys, they were just like, dude, like, don't play that in front of me. You, yo, like if we're riding in my car, like, yo, can we put on the radio? You know, so it was more of like, <laughs> I understand you doing something special and you're studying something. But for, can we take a break from that? And that was kind of everybody's thing with me. It was kind of like Ulysses is that guy that is very serious. You know, he's serious. He's like everything has a has a, an agenda. You know, he's the serious guy. But then what's funny is. Now, in hindsight, you know, especially with like Facebook, I, I can't tell you how many messages I get from those same people that are like, you know what, dude, I'm so happy for you. Like you were that guy trying to do what you're doing now then. And it's, it's amazing to watch your work pay off. You yeah. know, so it was like one of those things. It's like kind of being a little bit of a visionary in that I, w- I started going after what I wanted when I knew what I wanted versus a lot of them had to sort of discover that much later. Where does that come from? Like, how does that how, how did you manifest all of that? I mean, Especially first of all, that age. I, for, first of all, I think is 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 God. I mean, I think you know, like I said to someone the other day, I was doing a, an educational workshop, and they were like, "How did it, I was in actually in Jakarta? I was in Indonesia, and they were like, how did you choose drums?'" I was like, "Well, the drums chose me." Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I think on a certain level, it's like what you're even doing now. This is amazing podcast. Like to a degree, yeah. Did you probably sit down and write a be- business plan? But that sort of initial idea that probably it chose you. And I think yeah. for me. That focus of like, I, it goes back to the church and how I grew up. Like I was always taught whatever you do, do it unto God and do it for a greater purpose. So I think I've always been like looking for what like my ultimate purpose is. So I think once I started to find out like, okay, wow, I'm good at music. Great. Okay, cool. I love jazz. I'm good at it. Okay, cool. I'm performing at cafes. I have an effect on people. Okay, good. Like when I started realizing my impact, that started to kind of give me a a look into the lens of what my purpose would be. And so once I started seeing what my purpose would be, it's like, well, yo, like if your purpose is to be a chef, then you know what? Start getting cookbooks and go after that versus a lot of my friends started getting sort of peaks into or a peek into what they should be doing, but kind of ran from it or was uncomfortable with it and just wanted to blend in. And I've never been afraid of not blending in, you know, that. And so I think to your point or your question, I think my whole thing of going after this thing and being able to stay focused was just I didn't care that I fit in. I didn't care that I didn't, you know, that I that I wasn't the cool guy in some regard. I just wanted to be doing what I wanted. And I also wanted to be doing what I loved. And wherever that put me in life or in the social sort of social construct, to hell with that. I wanted to be a person that woke up every day and loved what I did, you know, and that that I do know. Like, I, I always remember talking to my father about dad, whatever I do in life, I have to be happy and I have to love it. And that was always a deal I made with. Yeah, I 
uh, I'm with you, man. I, I have, I've always said that. That's why I, you know, that's why I played music for years and I started this podcast mm-hmm. and all it's like, mm-hmm. I want to work, I want to be working on things and doing things that, that I love. And I mean, you know, life's too short to do stuff that, that you yeah. Love. So do you think that, that most people don't go after that because they're afraid, maybe absolutely afraid of standing out or, or what do you think it is? Do you think it's afraid of standing out? Do you think it's afraid fear of failure? I think it's, a, it's all those things wrapped up into one. And I think it's afraid. So there's a couple of things. I think there's afraid of the unknown, fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. And then I think there's the fear of even, okay, fine, I'll commit to the unknown. But then there's fear of the journey of the unknown, right? And right. then I think the other part to sort of sum it all up is we are also incredibly afraid of discomfort. Because one, one of the things you and I both know, a part of success is, is letting go of comfort to to adapt another level of comfort and even once you get that level of comfort you have to let go of that to get another level and so i think as creatures as you know as human beings we are we want to be comfortable we want to find stability and settle but the thing about settling is that at a certain point what feels new becomes comfortable and then becomes old and then we gotta find new terrain so i think people are just they're afraid of doing something new because they you know especially with the way society is right now where we we all want to like have something that we feel we can control. Whereas for me, what I love, which is why I committed to being a jazz musician, I was like, I love committing to an art form that is all that is committed to nothing ever being the same. Like right. if you were a jazz musician, you were committed to improvisation, which means you will never play this the same way twice. That's the difference between me and when I why I didn't choose to be what my boys, you know, who were musicians like, you know, groove drummers. I think it's great. I think it's unbelievable. But there's a difference between a groove drummer and a Max Roach or a groove drummer and, you know, Buddy Rich or whomever, like not saying one is better or worse, but they take two completely different journeys. One journey is the predictable, which is playing the same thing over and over again, which creates predictability. The other is not playing anything the same way twice. The interesting thing is one has an audience that's larger because more people are addicted to predictability. The other audience has a smaller audience because there are less people who are willing to take the chance and be committed to unpredictability. Huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so wow, it's, it's, I it's, never it's even, sm- I never, it's, you just yeah. blew my mind with that. So it's basically two different schools of thought, right? There's, the, there's, you know, pop music is predictable. I can hum along to it before the end of the song. I can sense what the end of the song is. You listen to Art Pepper or you know, uh, John Coltrane, you don't know how this thing is going to end. And there's, <laughs> right. there's a dis because there's a there, there's an instinct or, or distinctive disconnect that we as human beings have with discomfort and we don't like it. And that to me, the whole fear of the unknown, all that really is, is saying we don't like being uncomfortable. But why don't we like being uncomfortable? Because we don't like things being the same because we get bored. Right. 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 And so we're right. like, OK, I don't want to be bored. I don't want to do the same thing, but I'm too scared to go and try this thing because we're addicted to how people view us. And if I and, and, and if I'm content, if I can continue to know that I'm comfortable, then I can construct and be consistent with how I know I'm being viewed. Right. So that so it all goes down to when I'm comfortable, I'm predictable or life is predictable. I can control my narrative, which, mm-hmm. like you said, is good. But then people get bored with that. Whereas for me, I'm like, yo, man, there's a couple of things I need to know every day. I need to know I can reach my folks. I need to know I have a certain amount of money. But even in that, I've lost. I mean, I've gone through points in my life where I've had a lot and lost everything. And now I'm on my way to having again. Mm-hmm. So. I'm okay with like like once you've lost a lot of stuff like when you've like I lived in my car for like a period of time like when you've gone through that kind of stuff you no longer look at comfort as like the ideal circumstance because you realize everything that you think is solid can literally change in one sure. day. Sure, uh, <laughs> dude, know, I so, get it, man. I lost my job, yeah. my house, and my girlfriend yeah. in six days. 
Yeah, see, like I went through, you know, divorce, all that stuff. I went through all yeah. that, like in, in you know six months. So like it's the same thing. So once you get on the other side, of and that, you, you survive it, start, right? You right, you survive it, and then you get on the other side, and you start saying, actually, that stability that I thought at that house, that girl, that whatever, that's actually nothing. So yeah, do I desire to have that again? But I'm not going to build my life or the definition of my life around those things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's you know. You know, but we're think, all creatures of habit, man. Thinking about when you were a kid, right? So uh, you could have two different mindsets, right? You could go into it and say, what happens if I put all this work in, right? And everybody's making mm-hmm. fun of me in the neighborhood. And they're like, oh, man, that's the jazz guy. What? Oh, he's going to be a famous jazz musician, right? And then, mm-hmm. and you, and this is, you can think this way and be like, what happens if I don't make it? And then when I'm 35 and 40 and 45, everybody's going to be like, yeah, remember when you were young and you were going to be this famous jazz musician, you know? Yeah. And and I I think or you can say, you know what, I don't care what any of these people think and I'm just going to do my thing. And ninety nine percent of the time you come out on top anyway. Uh, well, making it for me, sorry to interject, sure. making it for me was not this ultimate goal. Like even all the stuff now, like, you know, when people interview me or they, you know, they read my resume, a bio and they, they state all these like accolades. I did not take the risk for that reason you know what i mean like i didn't take the risk because i wanted to win grammys i didn't even know what that stuff was i i knew that i did not want to have a mundane life and i knew i wanted to have a life where music was my everything that's all i knew you know what Mm -hmm. i mean so this idea of like you know did you think about with friends like you taking that risk what if you didn't make it making it to me was just making the choice every day to play music Right. All that other stuff was extra for me. Well, you know wouldn't, what I mean? wouldn't you would would you de- would you define making it as playing for a living? Yeah. Making right? it to me is that when I look at my bank accounts and when I look at like the fact that my friends, you know, my friends who have decent bank accounts, they they're doing a job they don't like. When I look at my life and my bank accounts, not that they're massive, but that that I can live. I can literally have the same kind of lifestyle that my friends who went to college have. And the thing is, I do it on my terms. That for me is making it. Yep. You know what I mean? That, that, and that is, you know, I can still buy Christmas gifts. I can travel home when I want. I can go out to dinner. I can, you know, whoever's significant in my life, I can treat them well. Like I have the same quality of life, if not better than other people who chose the safe route. And mine is on my terms. And so yep. that for me, bro, is making it, whether that means that I want a Grammy this year or not, that that sort of quality of life is consistent for me. And that that is what I define as success. And I think one would feed the other, don't you? Like, oh, absolutely. I, you know, I think yeah. that you're you're excited about getting up every day and working on these mm-hmm. projects and you have more energy and you have more, you know, you're you're more committed and more in tune with everything that's going on because you're like, I'm doing what I love doing. You know, Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm enjoying this and I'm and you're not like, you know, you're not doing it after you're working your nine to five and you come home. And right. You, you know, you're in a bad mood or whatever the right. case may be. The the flip side of the coin, too, though, I think it's important to to not to, I think it's important. And I always talk about it on the podcast about changing the narrative of of what it means to be a successful drummer. Right. Absolutely. You, you can have a nine to five job and still be a successful drummer. Absolutely. 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 You have to decide, though, what that success is for you. Like, for instance, the other day I was doing um, a video shoot for, for Zildjian. They're like doing some really cool educational stuff. And so at this video shoot, it was myself and Bill Stewart and, and, and some other guys. And so the guy who works for Zildjian, he's amazing. Um, Aaron Jackson, he runs the educational department. He was literally saying like he is living his dream life because he gets to basically sit down interview and work with guys like myself and Bill and other, you know, people on the Zildjian roster. But then on the weekends, 
he takes his son with him and he goes and plays gigs. Yeah. And then he comes back on Monday and works at Zildjian and, and, and creates educational you know, programs through Zildjian that go around the world. And he gets to work with A-list artists and he gets to be around amazing products. So, you know, for him playing meant, OK, I'm not going to be a Bill Stewart or or Carter Buford or whoever he represents. But as long as I'm playing every weekend and my son gets to see me play, I'm living my dream. Right. You know, and so I think for now for me, I, I, I'm a very like all or nothing guy. I didn't want that. I didn't like that back and forth of like, you know, doing some stuff I didn't like during the day, then playing at night. I was like, no, I need to have everything like I need to be right. able to like, you know, I want to be able to be on a plane all day and then get to a gig. Like I want my entire life to revolve around my art. But I think everybody has to choose what success means for them. And also the journey their life has taken them for that. Like Aaron has kids like I I have not had kids yet. So I'm able to be selfish and kind of throw myself into this thing in ways that some of my friends may not be able to, you know? Mm -hmm. So it just depends on the journey. I don't think that's being selfish. You know, I mean, it just depends on what journey I think life has taken you on. And then you have to maybe adapt your dream to, to your reality. You know, you may sit at the back of the stage, but the band revolves around you. You set the tempo, the intensity, and most importantly, the tone. And the easiest way to set the tone is to play Evans Drumheads with Level 360 technology. Trusted by industry-leading drummers like Chris Coleman and Nika Niles, Evans Drumheads offers the most consistent fit for every drum for max tunability all around. Thanks to Level 360 technology, Evans Drumheads fit perfectly across the shell and allow for increased tension to help you find that sweet spot. Plus, they take you beyond the normal tuning range for higher highs and lower lows. Now, the sound you want will always be the sound you get. Check out Evans with Level 360 technology at evansdrumheads.com. It's one thing to talk about how great dream symbols are, but it's another thing to actually hear them for yourselves. And the good thing about dream is not only do they sound great, but they're also priced well below the competitor's prices. So that way you can actually afford to buy these symbols. And if you don't think you can get a great sounding symbol at a low price, check out dreamsymbols.com. But first, I want you to take a listen to what these things sound like. To learn more about dream symbols, be sure to check them out at dreamsymbols.com. a tough question to answer but i but i ask this a lot of are you just a drummer when i and when i say just a drummer i mean is that you live and die by being a drummer being a musician you live and die by your art for you there's nothing else no so so it started that way for me so up until i think i was about 25 or 26 i was only a drummer i was a jazz drummer you know started out my career as a a gospel drummer but just a drummer nonetheless now at this juncture of my life you know uh in my 30s i now am a drummer i'm an educator and i'm an entrepreneur so you know so i i educate i have a nonprofit organization in florida for inner city kids where i teach the arts to them we have a community center my family runs it so so when i was 25 I started having these other passions. I started realizing like, yo, like, yeah, my life is cool, but man, there's all these kids that are like getting tossed by the wayside and art saved my life. Why don't I create with my family a place that they can come and have the same opportunity? So, you know, I sort of went from being a drummer to a drummer and an educator. 
And then all that, you know, those opportunities created other things for me. I'm also a professor now, all that. And then the entrepreneurship piece, I have a production company. You know, I do a lot of uh, corporate event planning and curating, even globally, working with multiple companies and using my insight and art, you know, understanding for different companies and how they should approach things. So for me, it started with, yes, drums, loving it, living in it, you know, just being all about it. But then that same focus allowed me to get into other things. Mm. And so now, like I said, it's, it's, it's sort of this multidimensional thing that has drums at drumming at the base, but it's so many other things that now I'm using that same uh, focus to do all these other interests that I now have. Right. I, I think that a lot of times we try to do too much at once. So for you, you know, I look at it like, okay, you, you dedicated your time and you focused on mastering your craft and you built your career. You got to a point where I don't want to say it's on autopilot, but it's at a position where I look at it like a a plane, right? So the plane, you got to get on the runway, you got to get up, you got to climb up and then you get to your cruising altitude where there's still stuff going on, but it's not as much energy to take off. And then now you can move on to something else and maybe put a lot more energy into this thing and get that thing to take off and then move to the next thing. And also what I want to share too is that my drumming, just to be completely honest, my drumming needed other things to keep it fresh. Because, at, you know, after, you know, I've been playing since I was two years old, took it really seriously, you know, at 13, 14, took it even more seriously at 16, and then went to a conservatory and was surrounded by it. So by the time, you know, you I got to 25, I mean, shoot, I've been doing this thing since I was two. Was that 23 years of like this one thing, you know? And right. so I needed to have something that kind of breathe life back into my playing because I kind of gotten, especially being in college, when you analyze the crap out of music, you it mm-hmm. sucks the life out of you. And so when I started teaching these babies and I started like watching them, you know, like come to music for the first time and I started watching them, you know, we would take them on trips and let them travel. And I started watching how they saw things for the first time. It reignited my playing and it actually like made me fall back in love with playing the way that I did when I was a kid, being around these kids. So, so yeah, so for me, yeah, not only is, like you said, you get to a certain point of mastery and then you can do other things, but sometimes you need those other things so that you can keep doing these other things. Because I think if I'd only still just been playing drums and just going from gig to gig, I, pro- I probably would have burned out by now, you know, it, honestly. Thing, I mean, and I know that this has to be in, in the back of your mind too, is that, you know, if you're, if you're doing projects and you're working with other people and you're a higher gun or you're, you know, you're um, a touring guy that long-term you're, you may want to start working on other things that can allow you to stay home if you want to stay home. Oh man. Well, that was, it was that, first of all, that was like the long-term um, desire. And then the other part of it was I got tired of, you know, ultimately like I worked, I, you know, had this level of mastery on the instrument, but I was still subject to other people calling me, you know? So mm-hmm. here, here I was, I'd made all these decisions that we talked about earlier so that I could sort of be the master of my own domain. And then here I was now waiting on somebody else to, to right. give me a license to create. And so that's when I started getting into the entrepreneurial thing. Cause I'm like, all right, with all this talent that I have and all this understanding I have, why am I still waiting on somebody? It's basically the same thing that my friend is doing, who's going in and clocking into a nine to five and, and making and somebody paying them to essentially, you know, like I read in this quote one day, I said, you know, if you don't have the courage to pursue your dreams, somebody will pay you to help build their dreams. Yep. 
you know? And so basically I had gone from, okay, making all these decisions to be the master of my own domain. And now here I am again, waiting on somebody to build their dream. And I was like, no, now it's time to become an entrepreneur because now I need to create my own terrain so that I'm not dependent on somebody else. Right. So what are some of the other stuff that you do? So, yeah. So the, the first thing, like I said, I have a production company where I'm producing a lot of independent, uh, Sometimes like mostly jazz, I would say like my, my roster in terms of genre is probably 70% jazz. I have a couple inspirational projects, um, even some children's albums. And basically I, you know, produce these albums. I take it from an idea of somebody's uh, concept that they want to deliver to, you know, pre-production, recording it, releasing it. Uh, some of the things may get licensed to a label, but most of them at this juncture are just independently released albums. So that's one facet uh, of what I do. And then years ago, I got into the private party scene at, at in New York where it was basically, you know, let's say uh, Mercedes Benz, you know, it has a launch event and they're like, we'd like to have some jazz. Well, a friend of mine may work for them and say, hey, I know a great jazz musician and I'll come in, provide a trio or provide whatever instrumentation that they want. And, you know, you they love it the first time and I, you become a client with them for years. And mm-hmm. um, so I, I have many clients like that. I also uh, do that for Fashion Week. I have a lot of different designers who I provide music for their collection. Uh, so there's that. I do, you know, I've done events for Facebook and, you know, and then and then other things that I've done, I work with different um, companies like that may say, let's say like, you know, like Sonos or some company may say, hey, Ulysses, we want to think about a different kind of way of presenting our product to creatives. What do you think about that? Or I may sit on a team of people who may ask for my opinion about that and you know, again, these are multiple streams of income, right. you know, so that I'm no longer sitting at home waiting to go play at, you know, Blue Note tonight. But I by but before I even get to Blue Note, I've had three or four other streams of income hit hit my, you know, hit my bank account. Right. So by the time I get to Blue Note, I'm not stressed out about, oh, my God, I got to do this gig because I'm not rent's not going to get paid, you know. Right, so right, right. Um, and, and then the other part of it that I really want to stress is that you have to look at what your gift is, right? Like, so I've always been, yes, a drummer and an educator, but I've always had kind of an entrepreneurial thing. That may not be everybody else's thing, just like you. You've always been a guy, I'm sure, I'm certain 15 years ago, people felt comfortable talking to you and telling you what they, telling you their life story, which is now, mm-hmm. you know, translated into this amazing podcast. So mm-hmm. I think to other drummers listening, your thing may not be having a podcast or being entrepreneurial like me or building a nonprofit, but it may be something really unique to what your journey has given you, then you should use that as a sense of adding income or adding other things to your sort of to your plate, you know, because I don't think all of us are just one dimensionally talented. I agree. And, you know, using the, using the skills that you have and, and getting them, you know, and, and using them in other areas, like, and right now it's funny because being an entrepreneur, a quote unquote entrepreneur is like, is sexy right now. Right. Everyone, right, it is. <laughs> everyone's like, I'm an entrepreneur. And for me, I'm like, man, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. We own five different restaurants. I've owned my own restaurant. This mm-hmm. drummer's, drummer's resource is the sixth business I've owned. You know what I mean? So I'm like, I've, I grew up in all that, but mm-hmm. if, if, even if it wasn't cool to be an entrepreneur right now, I'd still be doing this because that's who I am. So see, yeah, when the stuff, when the stuff falls by the wayside, I'm guessing that you're still going to be, you're still going to be going and doing those things because it's what naturally is going on with you. And I, to other people, I say that, you know, maybe aren't entrepreneurs or want to do this thing, like team up with somebody who is find someone else. You can do that kind of stuff. 
Absolutely. And and that was honestly how I got into it as well, because for me, it was really about like, like you said, hanging out with other people. Because before when I was with those people, I was I was just a musician. And then you start like getting a part of conversations and you're like, well, shoot, man, if they're doing it. I can do it, too. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So you start understanding um, things based on what you get access to or things that people expose you to. And then that opens up like a whole other terrain. And the one thing that you said that I thought was interesting was, you know, if you look back at your life, right, and look at the things that people go to you for all the time, and mm-hmm. you know, it's like, well, I guess every band I was in, I ran everything, you know, you're mm-hmm. like, all right, I, I, I guess I was the business guy back then, you know, I had a lemonade right. stand when I was five, you know, <laughs> right. so like, yeah. you know, it's, I mean, I'm sure that you, when you look back at things too, you're probably like, oh, I was, you know, I was thinking this way or I was forward thinking with this or I had ideas about yeah. how to how to make it better or whatever the case may be. So it's not a far stretch of what you did when you were 15. Yeah. It's just, you know, bigger dollars and, and a bigger, you know, bigger playing field. Yeah. Just like, you know, it's so funny. You talk about that. Like I had a resume when I was like eight, you know, of nine. course, like I had, you know, I had business cards, you know, I, I was one of the, <laughs> the same first way. kids, kids in my I, I think I was like one of the first kids in my whole age range that even had a website. You know, I had a website at like 14. And, right. you know, you talk about, you know, and I was also the guy that led the bands. And I was the one that, you know, I remember we my first band um, once, you know, mind you, I just started playing jazz, you know, months before. And I created this band called the Quick Changes Quintet. And I remember because nobody in the band could do the same gig. So we were always we were basically a band of subs. So <laughs> except for myself. And so. We called ourselves Quick Changes, and then I went to Barnes & Noble because at the time, you know, my friends and I, we were all trying to buy CDs because we're trying to learn jazz, but it's expensive. So I was like, man, what if I went to Barnes & Noble, and instead of them paying us, you know, money, they gave us gift certificates, and that way we could buy, you know, CDs. Well, I I, I scored that deal, and we had that gig for, you know, almost a year, and we had nice. people coming from all over. You know, so so you're right, like in that. It didn't just start like where where I am now building a nonprofit. It started in all these other things that we build. And then, like you said, it just becomes more dollars and bigger environments and, you know, more businesses and stuff. So, yeah, I think we just have to follow where, whatever that initial seed that's mm-hmm. been planted. Yeah. Talk to me about getting the gig with with Christian McBride and what that did for you, man. Um, so that that was, you know, I always say to people, you know, as strategic as we all are and all this business building, branding, all entrepreneurial stuff. Sometimes man, it just comes down to straight up provenance and just like purpose. And so with Christian McBride, there are a couple of things that happened. Um, I, so I, I told you I got accepted to Juilliard. And one of the key things about Juilliard's curriculum was that for improv class, instead of them having one teacher, they would bring in a guest artist every week to teach us improv. And it was like the who's who in jazz. And so I'd already known about Christian because I had downloaded or not downloaded. I bought some of his CDs mm-hmm. and I heard he was coming in and I was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe this guy is coming in. So he comes in, you know, he teaches class. Um, I get to play with him, you know, and he's like, all right, kid, you know, it's cool, whatever. Right. Well, who was, really do you remember who was playing with him? Like, um, well, he just came by himself. And oh, he played okay. With the students. Okay. okay yeah. Okay. So, um, he played with our class and, you know, no major connection, no major fireworks. Um, and, and then he did let us know that he had a jazz camp, um, in, uh, Aspen, Colorado and that we should apply. So a bunch of us applied, got accepted again, showed up. He was very nice to me. No fireworks. Um, then all of a sudden about four years later, I graduated high, uh, college and I had a friend of mine, a singer, who said, hey, th- that same cat that McBride has, he kind of wants 
older groups to come back. So I'm saying, man, I had just got married at that time. I'm like, man, you want me to go to Colorado, do a camp? I'm not going to even get paid no real money. I just got married to this woman who's like, why are you leaving to go make no money? Like, right. But something in my gut said, you haven't seen Christian in a while. You've only The last time you saw him, you were a baby. You should probably just see him again. Right. So I, I go, we do the camp. And sure enough, he comes into our classroom and he says, man, like, you sound good, man. You sound you sound different than you did last time. And I saw, oh, man, well, I've been working hard, whatever. And he said, all right, cool. Uh, months go by and I get a call from his manager who says, hey, Christian just started a new band and Carl Allen was the drummer. Mm-hmm. Carl can't make some of the dates. Can you make this this uh, tour? I was like, what? Like, oh, my God, I can't believe, like, maybe it was a year later. But anyway, I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe Christian's called me to sub a tour. So um, he did, in typical McBride fashion, he didn't call me to give me the music. He didn't talk through anything. His his manager was like, buy the record. And basically, they booked my, my, my flights. And I show up on the West Coast. And I'm there with this man playing, you know, playing a gig. And uh, we finished the tour, had a ball. He was incredibly gracious to me. He said, man, you sound so good. He was like, man, we got to do some more playing together. He said, "Had you have you ever done any big band gigs? I said, well, yeah. I said, as a matter of fact, Count Basie Orchestra wanted me to take over the chair after Butch Miles left. Um, but Kurt Elling had called me literally the same week. And Kurt had more dates. Kurt had like 100 dates and Count Basie had 20. Mm-hmm. So I was like, shit, you do the math. Right. So, <laughs> so he said, man, he said, man, you, you got a call with Count Basie? I said, yeah, I actually went out on the road with them. He said, oh, man, I, I got some stuff for you. So he called me for a big band date. Um, at Iridium. And long story short, I did the big band date. Carl had just taken on the position at Juilliard. He was running the program. Mm -hmm. And Christian just started calling me for more tours. So it literally turned from that to I was subbing pretty much all the time for his quintet. Then um, there were some gigs that he got called with the quintet that uh, didn't pay enough money. So he said, man, why don't we take, why don't we do some trio dates? And so it was him, me and Peter Martin. And that's when we did like this famous version of Cherokee that went viral. And I remember McBride came to me after the post and he said, um, man, so my manager and I just sat down and we counted up all the views from YouTube. And I got more views from that one YouTube clip with you and Peter than I've gotten from all the YouTube clips I've put online. Really? And, he, and I said, what? He said, yeah. So I think I'm going to be starting a new trio soon. And the rest was history. Wow. Uh, we found we found Christian Sands at that same camp. I went back the next year with McBride, but to teach and Sands was a student and we picked him up. And by the time Sands joined, it just the synergy was there, you know, and then it just it, it, it went crazy. And then it got to the point where McBride pretty much was like everything that I do, I want you on it. You know, he always calls me his American Express card. He says he never leaves on without me. So literally, I spent seven years with this man playing everything from. Trio, big band, quintet, touring the world, doing film scores with him, you know, special celebrations with celebrities flying all over the world, you know, shows in L.A., Hollywood Bowl. I mean, everything he did, I did. Hmm. Um, And it was unbelievable, man. It was probably one of the greatest collaborations that I've been able to have in my life to date. How many times were you on stage thinking, I'm sitting here playing with Christian McBride? That happened the first year. Um... I was like, you know, I was like, oh, my God, it's Christian. Oh, my God, look what he can do with the bass. Then it got to the point where I I maybe after a couple of years, I think when we started the trio with um, Sands and then the big band, like we, you know, we basically recorded the big band um, and then we won a Grammy for that big band CD. Once we won a Grammy for the CD, I started understanding like, oh, wow, OK, I think I bring something to 
to McBride. Like I'm honored to work with him, but I bring something to him that's mm-hmm. valuable to him. Um, and same thing when Christian got in the band, I was like, okay, I bring something that's valuable. So yeah, the first couple of years, of course, you're pinching yourself every time he takes a bass solo. I'm like dropping sticks because I'm like going crazy over his solos. <laughs> and then, you know, and then after a while, you're like, yo, like he's a bad cat. And he's one of the greatest, I think, bassists that will, you know, especially jazz, that will ever have lived. However, I'm important to him and was very important to the things he was able to do. And if not for me and my musical understanding, there are certain things I don't think he would have been able to do because mm-hmm. I basically created the foundation for him. Just like, you know, you look at, you know, one of his favorites, like James Brown. Yeah, was James Brown great? But it's those guys, Fred Wesley and Maceo and, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 all the guys, you know, Kyle Stubblefield and Bootsy and all. That's what created the magic that was James Brown. It wasn't just James and his own genius. Right. So, yeah, I mean, McBride is brilliant, but he needed other brilliant people to help him and sort of undergird him so he could be brilliant. Was there any intimidation that you felt considering all the people who had come before you and, and sat on that drum throne? I did, but I, I tell you, I owe, I owe a lot to McBride in that I obviously was sitting in the seat that I was like, oh shit, Greg Hutchinson sat here, oh my God, Roy right. Haynes sat here, oh my God, Kareem Rick, you know, like, you know, everyone, yeah. everyone. But then I was like, but he was like, dude, yeah, they all been here, but you're my guy. And I wouldn't hire you just because I like you. I hired you because you're of the same echelon. And I remember it was maybe after the first year, he he actually wrote an article about something like in Jazz Times. And he wrote a whole piece on me. And he was like, you know, Ulysses is, you know, soulful to a boot. He's this, this and that. He's the guy that like I depend on. And that's when I was like, yeah, Hutch and all those guys are in the band. But man, I'm something special to him. And then what started happening was all those guys started calling me like Hutch and all them would call me or I'd run into them on the road and they'd be like, yo man, like you and McBride got a thing. I know we had a thing, but y'all got a thing. Like I started hearing from these drummers who I was crazy about and they were all writing me and, and, and like sort of cheering me on and being like, yo, we ain't really heard McBride have a hookup with a drummer since the stuff we did. And now he's got you. And I mean, these people were so gracious to me. So yeah, man, I, I was nervous at first and intimidated until I started to kind of fill into my own set of shoes that right. were sort of being created for me. With him. Sure. What's what's the drive now? What what are some things that, that you haven't accomplished yet or or you still I mean, you're still young, you know, you you and I are the same age. Like there's you know, we're not we're not sixty, we're not seventy. <clears throat> there's a long yeah. there's still a long road and a lot of a lot of uh a lot of potential, you know, great things out there that, that haven't been done yet. So what are what are some things that are sort of on your radar or things that you'd like to achieve? Well, for me, man, the first is I, I want to always be getting better as a musician. Like you said earlier, like I, I want to be getting better. I want to be able to sit down at the drums. Like one of my mentors, Mo Miller, used to always say to me, he used to say, you know, Bimsky said, uh, you know, I want to sit down at the piano and surprise myself every night, <laughs> you know, right. and and that that's my goal. So first is to play in a way on the drums, on the instrument that constantly I'm surprised by what I hear and I'm always discovering. That's the first thing. Second thing is educationally, I have now taken this on as my life's work in that I want to always be a great musician that helps the next generation come to. Um, So that's a very big thing for me. And it is something that I'm always making myself available to the next generation. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, I want to be a sort of a thought leader musician who kind of aids in the world seeing music in a new way and putting music and jazz and art in these very interesting spaces. You know, you talk, we talk about the entrepreneurial thing. Like I really want to be a part of like 
the conversation of music in different spaces, especially globally. So yeah, I would just say, you know, playing my butt off every night and continuing to get better, making sure I make room for my babies and the next generation. And then being a guy that's kind of on the front line of, of, of changing sort of the, the, the way people think about things artistically mm-hmm. um, and be able to have a voice through that. So that that's that's what's next for Ulysses Owen. So however that pans out into awards and tours and money and family and that, I don't know. But that's that's kind of the subtext that I'm, I'm committing to right. in my life. Do you feel like you're wise beyond your years? I don't think that I'm wise. What I do feel that I've been blessed with, I feel that I have a clarity about what I am supposed to be doing. Um, and I don't feel a lot of people in my generation had that. Um, I feel like I'm incredibly clear about why I'm here and about how I'm supposed to navigate. I may not necessarily know where I'm going, but I am clear about why I'm here and what I'm supposed to be doing, I think. Have you, I mean, have you always felt that way? Yeah. I mean, I always kind of felt like as a kid, I was, I mean, my mom always called me old man. So, so <laughs> I kind of always, she'd be like, you're just a little old man. You know, I, I kind of always felt like I, I was living in two realities. Like one was, you know, mom telling me to, you know, hurry up, take a shower and get in bed. But then on the other side, I'm like sitting up in my bed, like with pajamas on and, you know, a onesie philosophizing about the world. <laughs> you know, like, so like, I always felt like I lived in, you know, between these two paradigms, you know, uh, right. in my life. So, yeah. So it's interesting. Um, it, it is interesting. And, and because I think that you've, you've done a lot of things, you've played with a lot of people and you've accomplished a lot of things at, at a relatively young age and especially, you know, the, the direction that you're going now with, with all of this, this clarity. And that's why I asked that question. And do you, so do you think that's something that, that people can learn? People can, people can work towards that clarity and that, that understanding of the direction that they're going? Or do you think that that's just God given? Well, I think some things are God. I think God gives us all gifts, right? Just like you talked about, you know, uh, your entrepreneurial stuff or whatever, like that was something that was given to you. But then the re- the thing that took you from, you know, one business to now six businesses, if not more, is you cultivating that. So I think, yeah, I was gifted with clarity, but I think what has increased my clarity has been me making time to hear myself and to hear what I need to be doing within. So to answer your question, even if people have not been gifted with clarity, because um, some people, just like I've been gifted with clarity, some people have been gifted with all, it's just always drama around them, right? So mm-hmm. so I think that what you can cultivate is making time. And I find the reason why a lot of people don't have clarity is because they don't make time to listen to themselves and they don't make time to challenge themselves. They kind of like what we talked about earlier, like the fear of unknown, like they keep living in that space and never challenging that, which is why they keep producing the same product, you right, know? Right. And I think so to your point, yeah, I think anybody can learn to do anything, but you have to also try something different. Like if you never try anything different, then you're going to keep getting the same result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the definition of insanity, right? Absolutely. Trying the same thing over and over again, expecting expecting different results. So are you are you a... Are you a sort of daily routine kind of guy? Do you have certain things that you do every day? Yeah. Talk yeah, to me about that because I'm curious. One thing that you said was about listening to yourself and and yeah. you know working on finding that clarity. And I was thinking like, okay, there there may be some meditation, there may be some yeah. daily reflective practices. So talk to me about that. So I, I wake up every day and I and I recite a morning mantra to myself, and it's basically a kind of a, you know four a list of four very short short things that have kind of changed my whole life. Um, And so I sort of recite that and then I kind of begin my day. And then sort of the repetitive thing that I do every day is I'm very careful about when I start receiving information. So like for me, I wake up, recite my mantra, 
do, you know, take a shower, do whatever, all that hygienic stuff. And then I'm like, all right, now I'm ready to open up the phone and the laptop and receive information. Mm-hmm. Um, then, so do you, this mantra, is it something that you, you wrote for your, your personal mantra that you want to put out into the world every day or things that you want to accomplish or it, it really, I'll tell it to you. So it basically started, um, it, it's, I basically wake up every day and I say, I'm a grounded man, which ties into a book that I read that talked about how, as you start becoming a man, it was really a dating book. And it, it was talking about the reason why a lot of people aren't, men aren't successful at dating is because we're not grounded. We, we, we are a leaf, not a mountain, right? So we mm-hmm. we're always withering and we're moved, we're shaken by the least bit things. So the, I had a lot of dating issues that I was going through in a period of my life. So the first thing I was like, yo, you got to be a grounded man. So I started saying that to myself every day. Um, then the second thing that I say to myself, is that I am excellent. And so I started doing all these studies around excellence. And one thing that really blew my mind, it said that like excellence is unavoidable. And so like, I saw, so I started saying, okay, I got to be a grounded man. So I keep myself, you know, humble and, and foundation, all that stuff, but then I got to be excellent. And then, um, another thing that helped me that I say, the third thing is I am enough because uh, a lot of times in my career and dating and in life, I'm constantly being challenged by, not getting opportunities or dealing with rejection. And then that makes me think that I'm not enough, whether it's not enough for the gig or not enough for the girl or not enough for the the money or whatever it is. And so I had to challenge myself every day and say, no matter what journey my life goes on, I'm still enough, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And then the last thing, because I'm very spiritual, as I just say, like, I'm favored by God, which which is sort of a declaration of me saying, again, no matter what, like, nothing of what I am is without whatever I'm favored by God to do and destiny and whatever you acknowledge as God, you know, in your life. So, yeah. So, so, so for me that do you just say this once or do you repeat this over and over? I just say it once. I literally just wake up. I'm like, I'm grounded, man. I'm excellent. I'm enough. I'm favored by God. And then I'm like, all right, hop in the shower, Hmm. you know? So, and, and then some days I forget, like some days I'll be like, you know, when I'm traveling, I'll be like on a plane and I'll be writing something. I'm like, Oh shoot. Okay. I'm a grounded man. I'm excellent. I'm favored by God. Cool. You know, right, and, right, then, right. Um, and then also what I'll do as well, if I'm battling a specific thing in my life, I'll add that to the mantra. So I may say like, you know, OK, I'm grounded. I'm, I'm excellent. I'm enough. I'm favored by God. And I will no longer be anxious. You know, or I may say, OK, you know what? I'm all this, this, this and that. And I refuse to be jealous today. You know, so I may mm-hmm. add whatever I'm really battling that particular day. And that just becomes a part of my mantra for however long I feel like I need to, to have it. And, 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 you know, then all of a sudden I find that thing that I was challenged by, it starts to leave. Right. Um, right. But yeah, man. So, yeah. So, and, and so, and then what I kind of continue with my day is, like I said, I decide when I'm going to receive information. Um, I'm also very big on, I don't take a lot of calls. I try to really make things a lot of emails and text messages just because I feel like for me, when somebody, you know, not like this, this is an interview, but I feel like for me, when when people call you, they have an opportunity to to deposit things into you that can throw off your whole day. Mm-hmm. So I really try to, and I've done all these readings on successful people, and it talks about how a lot of successful people are very guarded about like how, who they let in their space. So that that's that. And then I would say in terms of how I end my day, I make a very clear, distinct moment when I'm going to stop working, where mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, you know what? It's nine o'clock. It's nine thirty. I'm done. I'm 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 not reading emails anymore. I may get on social media, but at that point I'm like, you know, doing the fun stuff. I'm looking at friends' out. pages, you know, but I'm not working. And that has been very big for me because I was getting so worn out and burnt out by just working, working, working around the clock 
And then when it's really time to work and kick it in gear, you don't have anything left. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, man, I, I would say those are really important things in terms of my regimen. Yeah. Yeah. From what I gather, it's you really, you really live with in, intention. You know, my mm-hmm. wife and I always mm-hmm. talk about that, about, you know, how do you, everything that you do every day is, you know, you can live with intention or you can sort of let life happen to you. I remember, have you, I'm sure, you, have you seen the movie, uh, The Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith? Of course. Smith? Okay. Of course. So, the, the Christopher Gardner, who is the real guy that that movie's about, I remember watching an interview with him and he looked at himself in the mirror when he was broke and, you know, had all these issues. And he was like, how did you get here? And mm-hmm. he was like, you drove here mm-hmm. and you can drive out of here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so everything, not to get too far into this, but like every time my wife and I are talking about something or if there's an issue, if there's something that we need to fix or, you know, personally, mm-hmm. or whatever it is, we're, mm-hmm. it's always, we always, it's like the, the thing that we always say, we, we always say you drove here. Absolutely. You know, and Absolutely. or we drove so here or whatever it is, you know, I'm stealing that from you, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> I stole it from Chris Gardner and I love it. It's such a powerful thing. It's I like, love that. It's like, man, I, this is happening and this is, and it's like, okay, you drove here. Wow, that's powerful. You yeah, know? It's true. And if it's you drove true. here, you can drive out of here. Yeah, and, and that, that when you talk about sort of going back to what you said earlier about like, can people learn clarity? That, what you just said to me is exactly what people need to hear and that you make the decision for your life. Like I always say to people, somebody messed up when they told me that anything that I wanted in my life, I could get it if I worked for it. Because there was this thing in my life where I felt like I was so powerless. I felt like, oh, my God, no matter what I do, I'll never be a great drummer. No matter what I do, I'll never make this amount of money until something clicked one day. It was like, dude, like, do you understand the only difference between you and this person is what you're willing to work to do? And so same thing to what you just talked about. It's like, okay, if you're willing to drive there or you drove there and you messed up, okay, you can get back in the car and drive back. Like everything, nothing is beyond our effort, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, no, yeah, that's profound. I love that. Yeah, I, I, it always resonated with me, and, and you know, thinking about that, it's just it's an amazing it's an amazing concept. Um, Love it. The and I, I think overall, like we as humans, just naturally have this sort of self worth kind of issue, right? Or, or mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're not good looking enough, we're not a good enough drummer. You know, everyone else, it's easy for everyone else. Uh, but like you said, you know, I think someone screwed up and was like, "Hey, you can have anything you want. You just got to work." Yeah. Absolutely. It's a, it's an amazing thing. And once, once you realize that you are in control, it's, yeah. it, it changes everything. Absolutely. Completely changes anything. So what, uh, last question, I want to be, I want to sure. be respectful of your time. Um, sure. what are, are there some books that you recommend for people to check out? It sounds like you, you read a lot. Oh yeah, man. I, I, um, as a kid, I can admittedly say this. I hated reading, mm-hmm. um, until I started realizing what reading could unlock in me. And so, I would have to say one of the first books that made me fall in love with reading um, was probably the autobiography of Quincy Jones. That that really that, that was a book that I read in like just a matter of a couple of days. Like I was literally skipping class to finish reading this book. Like really? it just it was like, yeah, because I saw I like I mean, I, not that I'm you know going to be the next Quincy Jones, but like I saw something in this man's life that I wanted, but that also resonated with me. So that was a book that was really important, uh, important, excuse me, to me. The other book that I talked about, um, who's actually written by a guy who has an amazing podcast. He has a podcast called Knowledge for Men. His name is Andrew Farabee. And, um, and he has a book called 
the dating, I think it's like the dating playbook for men. And it's, it's not about anything that you think it's about. Like, like when I initially bought the book, I was like, oh, this book is going to teach me how to like, you know, pick up hot girls. Is <laughs> It has nothing to do with that at all. It has everything to do with m- development of man, of like our, our own psyche and all that, like just getting our stuff together. So that book was really helpful. Um, and then, yeah, man, a couple other books that I think are, I really love, like uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People mm-hmm. by Stephen Covey, um, The Seven Laws of Spiritual Success by uh, Deepak Chopra. Um, you know, there's also one of my mentors, Ricky Minor. Uh, he has, uh, I think the book, I'm looking at it now, is There's No Traffic on the Extra Mile. Um, so, yeah, there's a couple, there's a couple of those that like really have, have kind of helped me and shaped, um, what I'm, what, what I'm desiring to do. There's actually a book that I just finished reading, um, has nothing to do with music, but it's by a really great guy. He's a film producer. His name is Devon Franklin. And, uh, he, it's called the Hollywood commandments. And it's all about, uh, you know, how to have, uh, secular spiritual success in a secular world. Like, so basically keeping your, your morality and all that intact, but still being spiritual in a secular world. Uh, and attaining success. So, yeah, those are the kind of things that I'm reading. And then, you know, like I love poetry. So I'm always reading like, you know, different things by different poets like Lucille Clifton and Nikki Giovanni. Like I, I love words because I'm also a writer. Like I have a blog and I love writing. So like I'm that's kind of a new phase of my life, too, where I'm reading all these amazing writers and kind of, you know, whether it's Tennessee Coates or whomever and like kind of understanding language in a new way through writing. So, yeah, that's the kind of stuff I'm reading. Amazing. Amazing. There's, there's a book I'll recommend to you. It's called Mindset by, by uh, Carol Dweck, D-W-E-C-K. Oh, I'll write that out. Mindset by Carol Dweck. Yeah, D-W-E-C-K. It talks about the difference between basically a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. So the ideas of whether wow. you, you're, you, know, you view failure as a learning opportunity or you look at it as like the end all be all and, and, you wow. know, and like whether you think binary like smart, ugly, smart, stupid, that kind of thing yeah. and then versus whether if you fail that you can learn from it or if it's detrimental and you don't, you uh, avoid things because you don't want to fail. So love it. Wow. That's great. Yeah. So cool, but, man. Ulysses, man, this has been yeah. an amazing conversation. I, I, Thank you. Likewise. I, I think we could, I could do this for hours. Uh, I do. I appreciate one. I appreciate you, you know, taking the time to chat and all that. And I want to applaud you on all the things that you've accomplished, all that positivity that you're, that you're putting out into the world, all the good things that you're doing in Jacksonville with your charity. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Just a lot of amazing things, man. And I, I, I respect you for that. And I appreciate you for coming on here and talking. Thank, thank you for the work you're doing, man, and highlighting like drummers and great musicians that, you know, uh, and, and, and showing and giving other drummers like a way to like understand how they can progress, man. That's really powerful. So well, thank you. Kudos to you. Thank you. I couldn't do it without all the guests. So, so uh, <laughs> cool, man. Nobody well, wants you. to just sit around and listen to me rambling. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having me on this. Of course, man. My pleasure. And uh, you're welcome back anytime. All right, man. Take all care. Right, thank you thanks. so much. So there you have it. That was Ulysses Owens Jr. And you can find the show notes to everything that we talked about by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 354. Also, don't forget, if you're going to NAM, I will be at the Dream Symbols booth on Saturday at 12.30 p.m., booth 7239. That's at NAM. That's at the Dream Symbols booth, 7239 on Saturday at 12.30 p.m. And as always, thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. And be well, and I will talk to you soon. Peace.